0: Bibles, please, to First Samuel thirty one. First Samuel, Chapter Thirty One. This is the last chapter in the book of First Samuel. And let's go ahead and read the whole thing. 1 Samuel 31, beginning in verse 1. Now, the Philistines fought against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa, so they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of beth But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan and they came to Jabesh and burned them there and then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for 7 days. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're sobered by what we just read. So much that could have been in Saul's life ended in tragedy. And we're warned and we're humbled by the reality that Saul's not really anything, any, anyone different from us. We have the same human nature, the same earthly temptations. The same dangers we fight the same foe, and so Father, we recognize our desperate need of you, and we ask that this morning, as we think about this text and encounter you as you've revealed yourself in your word, that you would uh, that you would humble us and that you would protect us from ourselves father we we also want to continue to pray for those who are doing ministry outside, the, uh, outside this room. We think of our nursery workers, our children, children's church volunteers. We think of uh, the W family as they're ministering elsewhere today. Uh, our IMB missionaries who are scattered throughout the entire globe and others who uh, I'm not necessarily thinking of right now. I, I pray that you would pour out your blessing on their ministry. Fill them with your spirit. And cause them to bear fruit for your name. And uh, Father, just open our eyes to what you have for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1979, Jim Henson and his furry creations known as the Muppets did something innovative, almost unprecedented. The Muppet movie was a hilarious but touching story about a frog named Kermit who went on an adventure to try to make it in show business. But the movie didn't end the way that viewers may have expected. Instead of a black screen with small white letters scrolling through giving credit to the people who had worked on the film, there was actually a post-credits scene. The Muppets are shown seated in a theater watching the movie everyone else had just seen, cracking jokes, encouraging viewers to keep watching until the very end when the animal says, go home. Now, nowadays it's very common for movies to have a a post-credits scene. In some of the best examples, it's almost the most intriguing part of the movie, isn't it? Uh, Like the epilogue of a book, we find out important details about the hero's future and are given clues about a possible coming sequel. Well, You can think of the 31st chapter of 1 Samuel as almost like a post-credits scene in the first installment of a series of action movies, or like the epilogue or afterward in a riveting page-turner where you hope there's another sequel yet to come. We find out what happens to our hero, in this case he becomes a villain, and we're given just a passing glimpse about what is going to take place in the sequel. You should know that the division between 1 and 2 Samuel is more or less artificial. It's simply a function of the physical limitation of scrolls. Uh, Ancient texts like this, uh, I'm sure you know this, they are originally written on scrolls. Uh, pieces of papyrus that were glued together in a line until you had this roll of papyrus and then a scribe would write the text in columns on the scroll. Many examples of this survive even down to this very day, but there was a limit to how much you could scroll up, I guess. And, and so they, ancient, uh, ancient scribes, they from, from time immemorial, Uh, split up large texts like 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings into multiple scrolls. And that's why you have a division between 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. They're really one long, continuous narrative like four volumes in a multi-part series. And yet it's obvious why the original scribes and editors decided to divide the narrative where they did. This chapter is really the close of Saul's story, a story with a bloody and tragic ending. And for that reason, this is going to be our last message from 1 Samuel. Perhaps sometime in the future, we'll get into 2 Samuel. But since this is the last chapter in Saul's story, in the last of 26 sermons from this book, what I want to do is just spend a moment sort of in the examination room with Saul's dead body and say, hey, What's the cause of death here? Okay, I know that's kind of gross to think about, but we need to do that. Like, what was it that led to this moment in Saul's life? What was the pathogen that was assailing Saul's heart and leading him to this untimely and ignominious death? So, let's just take a moment to do that in the first place. We're going to do some diagnostic work on Saul. And then from the text itself, we're going to see five warnings about that one specific pathogen that was invading Saul's heart and uh, something that we need to avoid in our own lives today. So let's just take a moment in the first place to do some of that diagnostic work, to go into the lab, to get out the microscope and really see what was going uh, going on at the heart level in Saul's life. What was Saul's real problem? Think back over the course of his life. You might say Saul's problem was he was a rebel. He was rebellious, right? And you'd be right. Early on, when he was instructed to wait for Samuel, he grew afraid of the people, and instead of waiting on God's timing, he offered a sacrifice for himself. Later, when he was told to destroy the city of the Amalekites, he only partially obeyed, and Samuel calls him out, and he says, you're being a rebel. You are rebellious. Uh, when God decides to take the kingdom from him and give it to David, Saul doesn't submit to the Lord's will. He's a rebel, and he pushes back against what God wants, and that's kind of the story of the rest of his life. So you, you might say uh, that his main problem, the main pathogen is that he is a rebel, but in my mind, at least, when I hear that word rebel... Uh, I think of somebody who is uh, disobeying some authority with a high hand, like willfully, purposely saying, hey, I know what I'm supposed to do, I know what you expect of me, but I'm not going to do it. And that doesn't quite capture what Saul's problem really was, because for so much of Saul's life, he thought he was in the right, he thought he was justified in the things that he was doing, that he had not been given a fair shake, right? And so I think we need to dig a little bit deeper because I don't want us to come, come away from this and say, you know what, Saul is not like me. That could never happen to me. We have to recognize the reality of self-deception. The, the prospect that we could have this moral malignancy in our own hearts and not even realize that it's there. This is particular, particularly dangerous uh, in the life of a leader, by the way. We can so easily convince ourselves that nobody else understands our unique perspective or our situation. We can cleverly explain why we have an excuse, why it's different in our case, why we are the exception to the rule when we're in that type of position. So if you're a husband or a father or a business owner or a teacher or a person of influence in general, be on special guard. Rebellion is not always explicit. It's not always high-handed. It's not always willful. It's not always something we know we're doing. It, it comes so often with, a, with a, a measure of self-deception. So instead of saying that Saul's main problem is that he's a rebel, I think it's better if we get a little bit more specific and say that the core of Saul's problem is a little germ called pride. Pride. It was pride. Pride that led Saul to say, God's timing is wrong. God's plan didn't take into account these special circumstances. I know God's really smart, but he didn't anticipate these things. And so I'm going to take matters into my own hand because I have more information than God does. And I'm going to go ahead and do the sacrifice instead of waiting on God's timing. It was pride. It was pride that led Saul to partially obey. He said, I know what God said, but I actually have a better idea than God. Like, I know God wanted me to destroy all the things in this city, but I I think it would be better and God would actually like it more if we did it my way. It was pride that fueled Saul's jealousy of David. Pride that inflamed his paranoia. It was pride that emboldened him to have the priests of God massacred. Pride that led him to believe that he could find the truth by consulting the dead instead of waiting for God. The God he had offended time and again. Pride that prevented him at the very end from repenting in brokenness and humility. It it didn't have to end this way for Saul, but his pride hardened his heart, deceived his mind, twisted his affections and desires. His pride, folks, killed him. Do you appreciate just how deadly pride is? We we like to play around with pride. Some of our heroes, athletes, politicians, celebrities are the proudest people on the planet. They think they know everything, and we watch them, and we say, oh, man, aren't they great? (laughs) No. We say, I don't struggle with pride. Like, you don't hear the pride in a statement like that? I used to be a proud man. I did. But I've moved past that. Okay. I occasionally deal with pride, but I feel like I can handle it on my own without the help of my church family. It's something that I've got under control for, for myself. Well, pride blinds us, doesn't it? It grieves me to watch it happen. Men and women with incredible credible potential to use their gifts in the service of God, men and women who start out so well who have such great promise to watch their ministry that impacts so many people shrivel up like a cluster of rotting grapes, all because they refuse to be told that they have a blind spot of self-deceptive pride. Folks, we all need to do a little bit of diagnostic work on ourselves. And by the way, since there is so much self-deceit wrapped up in pride, we need to invite other people into this process as well and say, hey, Maybe somebody else sees something that I can't see in my life. We all need this. Pride was Saul's problem. Beware of pride. And this chapter offers five reasons why we ought to be on guard. First of all, beware of pride. It will harm the ones you love. Beware of pride. It will harm the ones you love. Notice the opening verses of the chapter. In laconic brevity, our spirit-inspired author delivers a series of rapid gut punches. He says, The men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa, and the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. Saul is the guilty one. Saul is the proud one. Saul is the rebel. Saul is the one who is self-deceived. Saul is the one whose doom was announced by the ghost of Samuel. But it isn't just Saul who suffers. It's everybody else. Imagine being Saul. You're standing on top of that mountain, and you look down across the valley, and there's blood everywhere. Uh, The bodies of your countrymen lie crushed beneath the iron chariot wheels of your greatest enemies. The archers pull back their bows and they point them them up towards the men fleeing towards you on the mountainside. And they fall over and over again. You look over to your right. There lies your oldest son. His eyes are empty. A look of terror frozen on his lifeless face. You look over to your left. There lies your middle son, cold and gray. You look below you. Your youngest son is climbing up towards you. And then, thwack. The sound of an arrow, he stops, he stumbles, he falls backward into the valley, and he's gone. And to know that it is all because of your pride. It didn't just harm you, it hurts the ones you love. Church, pride is nothing to trifle with. We need to chase it out of the cracks and the crevices of our hearts. We need to enlist the help of our brothers and sisters in Christ because the stakes are just too high. It doesn't just impact you. It impacts all the other people around you, everybody else in your life. In 2003, an incredibly smart and talented young woman dropped out of Stanford University to invest all of her time in the company that she had founded, a company that promised to improve the lives of millions. Her goal was simple, bold, and breathtaking. She wanted to be able to conduct dozens of diagnostic tests on just a drop of blood. Elizabeth Holmes raised millions from venture capitalists for her startup Theranos. She recruited hundreds of the best and brightest to work for her as she pursued the dream. But unbeknownst to her illustrious board of directors and nearly all of her stellar employees, the dream was far out of reach in spite of, failure after failure, Holmes wove a story of success that fooled everybody, including executives at pharmacy retail giant Walgreens, who contracted with Theranos to install their machines at thousands of their stores. And all, as we know, blew wide open in 2015 when a journalist by the name of John Carreyrou of the Wall Street Journal published a bombshell investigative report. Holmes would eventually be tried and sentenced just recently, just a few months ago, to 11-plus years behind bars. But not before thousands of innocent sufferers were mistreated through the faulty blood-testing hardware that didn't actually work. Billions of dollars of capital was lost. Hundreds of employees were left without a job. Holmes's closest confidant was also sentenced to prison, and what is perhaps most tragic of all is that she has a toddler and she is pregnant with her second child, and they have no idea what's going on. It's not their fault, and yet they will suffer more than anyone else in the world. What happened? She was proud. She thought she could game the system in an attempt to fake it till she made it. Who's suffering? Thousands including two innocent children who have no idea what's going on. Folks, when you're proud, it's going to hurt you, but it's going to hurt everybody else just as much as it hurts you, if not worse. So, Dad, if you're not willing to be teachable and face your mistakes and imperfections and you keep getting fired from job after job after job, you're going to suffer, but your kids are going to suffer more even than you do. Mom, when you convince yourself that your situation is different and you shrug off your friends' concerns about the life-dominating secret sin, it's going to blow up in your kid's face much more than it blows up in your face. Business owner, when you move forward without prayer or justify ungodliness in the name of your bottom line, and it all comes crashing down, it will be your employees eating ramen and beans for dinner, not just you. Please, folks, beware of pride because it will harm the ones you love. Second warning, beware of pride. It will end in shame. It will end in shame. At the end of the original Star Wars trilogy, Anakin Skywalker, who had lived for decades as Darth Vader, dramatically changes course in this redemptive act of self-sacrifice. He protects his son Luke and destroys the evil Emperor Palpatine and dies as a result. It's a wonderful redemption arc for nerds everywhere. (laughs) But if you were looking for that kind of last-minute, happy ending in the life of Saul, you will be sorely disappointed. Verses 4 and 5 tell us the specific circumstances of Saul's death. He's wounded by arrows, he's surrounded by enemies, he's alone, he's isolated, beginning to bleed out, and he realizes there's no way out and his mind races to the inevitable. If the Philistines find me, they're going to torture me, they're going to maim me, they're going to dishonor me, I, I don't want it to end like that. And so he goes to his armor bearer and he says, please, I'm going to die either way, would you please take my life? When the man refuses, he does it himself, literally falling on his sword. So you can get a grasp, folks, of just how unthinkable this is to an an ancient Israelite. We live in a democratic republic. If one leader dies, there are plenty of others that, that can take over, okay? And we have the rule of law and things like that. The nation of Israel was not at that place. Saul's death was so unthinkably tragic And you can see that tragedy come out and the fact that the armor bearer kills himself as well when he finds out Saul had died. Now, before I comment on this, let me just acknowledge self-harm and suicide are extremely, excruciatingly difficult issues for everybody, some more than others. Sadly, our society is so broken, almost everybody in this room, if not everybody, knows someone who's taken their own life. A moment's poor judgment can lead to very permanent consequences, and no two situations are exactly the same. And and let me just point out that Saul's situation is unique here. He's mortally wounded. He's bleeding out. It's just about the timing and the manner of his death at this point. And so I'm pausing to say, if there's anybody in this room who's comparing him or herself to Saul's situation and thinking, hey, there's no hope, there's no way out, I better just kind of end it right now, Uh, I I just want to plead with you that you do not have to be like Saul. Your situation is not the same. So please let us help you. Okay? Back on track now. Notice what happens in Saul's case. Not only does he fall on his own sword, but later when the Philistines find his body, they strip him of his armor. That's kind of a recurring theme, right? Uh, Once again, we're reminded that God has stripped away the kingdom from Saul. They cut off his head. They impale his body on a city wall. In other words, the focus of this passage is not on the fact that Saul ended his own life. The focus of this passage is the fact that Saul died in, the, in a similar way to the enemies of God uh, who had gone before. Think about it with me. Do you remember when David killed Goliath? Remember how the literary features of that particular text of David and Goliath made it clear that Goliath is sort of a representative of the seed of the serpent, that he is God's enemy who had mocked the armies of the living God? And, And what happens to Goliath? His head is crushed, and then David what? Cuts off his head. Rewind a little further to 1 Samuel chapter 5. There's this huge battle. The Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant of God. They bring it into their idol temple, the Temple of Dagon. They go to sleep, they wake up the next morning, they go to the temple, and what happens to Dagon? What's happened to him? This lifeless idol has fallen on the floor, and its hands and its head are cut clean off. Rewind a little further to the report of the same battle back in Shiloh in the land of Israel. Eli and his two sons die on the same day. Does that sound familiar to something that maybe happened in 1 Samuel 31? What's most striking, though, is Eli's manner of death. He hears about the death of his sons. He falls backward. He hits his head, and his neck is severed, and he dies. Rewind even further back to Judges chapter 9. Go back in your own time and read Judges chapter 9. Compare it with 1 Samuel 31. This is the story of the illegitimate Israelite king named Abimelech. Abimelech was a tyrant who rose to power after killing all of his brothers. He was a violent man who ruled. Uh, The people of Israel, just like Saul, he died just after asking his armor-bearer to run him through. But in Abimelech's case, the the real problem, uh, the mortal wound, was caused by a woman who dropped an upper millstone out of a tower and it fell on Abimelech's head. His head was crushed and then he was killed by his armor-bearer and then he died. And if you haven't picked up on the pattern yet, rewind all the way back to the beginning to what God told the serpent in the Garden of Eden all those years before. What did he say to the serpent? He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush your head. So what am I saying? What's the connection here? I'm saying that Saul is dying like the seed of the serpent. He dies just like Abimelech, the evil king, cursed and shamed by God himself. He dies like Eli, a heavyweight who treated God like a lightweight. He dies like Dagon, disgusting idol that couldn't stand before the glory of the Lord. He dies like Goliath, that gigantic dragon man who mocked the armies of the living God. So if you're wondering whether Saul died like a hero, wonder no more. He died as an enemy of God. Shame, dishonor, terror, dread, everlasting judgment. Folks, this is where pride is going to take us. Isn't that painfully ironic? I mean, the very thing that our pride wants to avoid is the thing that it brings, right? We want honor. We want glory. But what does pride bring? Shame, death, dread. And how can we be surprised? Because when we meet the God of the Bible, we learn the whole point of everything that exists is to give him glory. It's his due. It's all about him. It's his desire. And so when we say, I- I'd like some of that, I- I'd like to be treated like a God. I'd like it for people to look at me and be amazed. I'd like to get some of the glory for myself. I'd like to be the king. We are striking at the very reason that God made us in the first place, and that is not going to end well. Hannah summed it up in her song in 1 Samuel 2. She said the adversaries of the Lord will be broken to pieces. And we've seen that play out again and again and again in 1 Samuel. Beware of pride. It it will hurt the ones you love. It will end in shame. Thirdly, beware of pride. It will send the righteous running. It will send the righteous running. Verses 6 and 7 tell us that When the men of Israel learn about Saul's inglorious end, they they quake with fear. Immediately, thousands pack their belongings and they run for their lives. And then look at the end of verse 7. What happens to these men who find out about Saul? It says, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. So what's taking place here, folks? This This is the exact opposite of what God's intention was for the land of Israel. God intended, do you remember what God told Moses in the book of Deuteronomy? He says basically this. He says, keep my covenant and you'll go into the land. The enemies of God will fall before you and you'll live in houses that you didn't build and you'll eat from from the crops, from fields you didn't plant or plow and you'll drink the wine from the vineyards that you never had to cultivate. That's what God promised to the land, to, to the inhabitants of Israel would happen when they kept his covenant. But he says... If you, if you reject me, the opposite's going to happen. And isn't this what's taking place here with the Philistines? Instead of the Israelites going in and conquering and expanding the kingdom of God, they're retreating and the enemies of God are occupying their homes. This is exactly the opposite of what should have been happening. But because of Saul, because of the pride of this one man, the curses of Deuteronomy 28 are coming upon the nation. You'll build a house, but someone else is going to live in it. So You have to understand this happens if you have any type of leadership, any type of influence over anybody else, especially if you have spiritual leadership responsibilities. If you're a parent, if you're a spouse, if you're a preacher or a teacher, if you're a small group leader or an elder or a deacon— when the person who is supposed to lead everyone else in their relationship with God shakes his fist at God, you're going to scatter the righteous. The righteous flee from the proud man. And I've seen this happen, and I'm sure you have as well. The righteous run away when the proud man takes over. Think of the great institutions throughout, throughout history. I can think of some just in my own personal experience, local churches that were full to the brim with people when I was a kid. I remember just going in and being like, I can't find a seat. It's so full. I mean, so many things are happening here. And you go into those buildings now, and they're like empty caverns. And it all boils down to the pride of the men who were entrusted to lead those great organizations. If those men had just humbled themselves and said, God, I don't know everything. I need your help. Church, I don't know everything. I need someone to speak into my life and show me my blind spots. If they had just humbled themselves, what a difference it could have made. But instead, the people of the community drive past this massive brick building. There's two or three cars in the parking lot Uh, on a Sunday morning. (laughs) You walk into the building, it smells like mildew. The grass is growing up in the cracks of the sidewalk. You walk inside and it looks like a dystopian novel. What's happening? Uh, Pride has destroyed a great institution a proud man has come in to take leadership, and the righteous have scattered. What happened? A lot of times you can just trace it back to pride. Somebody got too big for their britches. They started trying to control everybody else. They started fighting the other leaders so they could have more power. They started to get petty, and the righteous took, took one look at it, and they said, I'm out of here. I, I don't want to be a part of this. Institutions come and go for various reasons, but the quickest way that you can drive away good people from your life is to be a proud person. So, folks, beware of pride. It's going to hurt the ones you love, it's going to end in shame, it will send the righteous running. But it gets worse. Beware of pride, it will make the wicked gloat. It will make the wicked gloat. Uh, we read what the Philistines did. They cut off Saul's head, they ripped off his armor, they put it on display in the temple of Ashtaroth. They hang his body from a city wall, and then notice what takes place from their perspective. Uh, they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the what, carry the good news to the house of their idols. Carry the good news. Like, the Philistines are out there, and they're proclaiming the gospel. Hey, we defeated the armies of Israel. We defeated the God of Israel. Isn't this good news? The wicked are gloating, and they're bragging, and they're boasting. They couldn't be happier. This is what happens when pride festers in the heart, especially in the heart of a leader. God's enemies come out of the woodwork, and they, they look at what's going on, and they say, see This guy's not as righteous. This God is not as righteous as he said he was. He's not as glorious as everybody thought. No, we are the victors. You know, in some ways, the proud have an easy life, don't they? Because Satan loves When proud people are in leadership, the the demons rejoice. The devil is gratified. He wants to make it as easy as possible for you to trick yourself into thinking everything's fine when in fact you're suffering from a terminal case of pride. He's going to do whatever it takes to keep you in that place. He'll feed you all sort of flattery, all sorts of lies. He'll give you visible success. He'll make everything look like everything's great because he loves to give an occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme And to gloat. So folks, let's just get practical here for a minute. Pride, self-deceit, self-reliance, self-righteousness, stubborn rebellion, this whole constellation of attitudes that Saul suffered from are so deadly and so dangerous and so harmful that we cannot afford to ignore the problem. Like we can't just walk out of here and say, well... That's probably not my issue. The stakes are way too high. I mean, if you had any doubt whether God was going to fulfill his word of judgment in Saul's life, like wonder no more. This post-credit scene makes it so clear God's word of judgment is absolutely final and it will come to pass. So if that's the case, if messing with pride leads to this level of, dest- of of devastation, why are we not more wary of it? Why are we not more careful around it? In, in fact, our whole life, think about this, folks. Our whole life is built around protecting our pride. Like, we want to protect it. It's the thing that's killing us, and we want everybody to leave it alone. It- It's very, folks, it's very abnormal for American Christians to respond positively and humbly to criticism. Did you know that? In fact, many of you, we we don't, if somebody came to you today and they pointed out something in your life that was a, a matter of pride, and they said, this is going on, and you didn't know about it, and it was a blind spot, you might leave the church over that. That's how we, that's where we've come in the church. We protect our pride. I mean, do you really think that you have so little to work on? Do you really think that you are that self-aware that if somebody came up to you and confronted you about something that was surprising and that you didn't know was there before, that you are so confident that that person is wrong that you would actually break fellowship with them over that? How proud can you be? Like, it's the textbook case of pride. And we get up in arms and the veins start popping out of our forehead when somebody does something wrong. From our perspective, you know, you voted the wrong way or you, you uh, looked at me the wrong way or you said something that was sort of impolite, but we protect our pride. We say, don't go there. Don't you dare call me out on my pride. We want everybody else to think that our pride is no big deal. What that person over there is doing, that's a big deal. Everybody look at them, not at me. But pride, folks, is the worst. It's the worst, and the people who are most susceptible to it are the leaders, right? Like the the influencers, the people who need to be more on guard than anybody here are the pastor, the elders, the deacons, the longtime Christians, the CG leaders, the EC teachers, the Sunday school teachers, the musicians, the heads of household. Satan he just salivates over this. He would love nothing more than to trap us in a blinding, self-deceptive pride. He could just sit back and watch us destroy the church and destroy our families. He, we would do it for him. By the way, if you're a man, not, not to be like uh, sexist, okay, but if you're a man, this is particularly a problem for you. A, a temptation for you, I should say. Some of you, your wives, have learned that there are certain areas of your life that they are not allowed to address because you punish them if they bring it up. They learned it years ago. Don't bring up, don't go there. Don't talk about my pride. And so, because you give them this, this silent treatment, you'll fly off the handle at them. You point out everything wrong that your spouse has ever done. And so, they've learned okay, I'm not going to bring up his pride. And so, it's been decades, it's been 20, 30 years since anybody's called you out on your pride. Please beware. Beware because pride is going to hurt the ones you love. It's going to end in shame. It's going to send the righteous running. It's going to give occasion for the enemies of God to gloat. But there's a fifth reason why you should beware of pride. Here it is. Beware of pride because there's still hope. Beware of pride because there's still hope. There's still a chance for you to turn away from pride and bow the knee. Look at what happens in verses 11 through 13. This is like the little reminder in the post credit scene that there's going to be a sequel, right? This is the end of Saul's story, but it's not the end of the story for the people of God. Uh, The men of Jabesh-Gilead, they hear what happens, and they march all night into enemy territory to recover Saul's body and give him a proper burial. Now, I know we've seen a lot of names, place names in 1 Samuel. It's easy to get confused. So if you're sitting there thinking, okay, the men from blah, 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 they went to blah, 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 And they did blah, blah, blah. Like, don't think that way. Like, focus. All right? We've heard of this city before. Uh, These are the men of Jabesh Gilead. These are the guys who remember what Saul had done all the way back in the beginning of his reign. This was a city of people who had been in trouble. At the beginning of Saul's reign, this man named Nahash had come in, and he laid siege to the city. And he said to the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead, you've got a choice. You can either pluck out your eye in a sign of loyalty to me. I know, this is a very violent text today. I'm sorry. (laughs) You you can either show me that you're loyal to me and I'll let you live, but the way that you're going to show me is by plucking out your eye, or I'll just kill you. That's the choice. And so the men of Jabesh Gilead were so upset. They They were... They were at a loss, and so they send messengers to King Saul. And Saul, at that time, in obedience to God and under the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit, he gathered all of Israel to to save the city of Jabesh-Gilead from their oppressor. And these guys remembered that. They said, let's not forget. Let's be thankful. Saul had gathered his men, and he had marched all night to save us from that evil guy. And so we are willing to march all night in order to rescue his body, and retain some of his honor so this is a beautiful example of grief and gratitude they recover the body of a man who had shown them kindness all those years before and i think here's here's what i think this our our author is doing he's saying the fire isn't out there are it looks like it's out It, it looks gray and cold But there are little embers there that are still glowing, and God is merciful, and God is kind, and he's going to blow on those embers, and he's going to fan into flame the people of God again. Here's the message of this chapter, folks. If there's only one thing that you take away from today's message, let it be this. God's word of judgment on the proud is final. It is absolutely certain it is going to come to pass, but it's not God's final word. It's not God's final word. God's word of judgment on the proud is final, but it's not his final word. What I mean is this. God was not messing around when he told Saul that judgment was coming. His word is final. There's no arguing with him. There's no back and forth. What he says is going to happen is going to happen. But it's not the last thing that God wants to say. He wants to rush to us to show mercy to us, folks. He wants to show kindness to the grateful and to the grieving. And and you can see that if you read on into 2 Samuel. David weeps over Saul's death. He weeps over Jonathan's death. And and God's blessing comes to him in the midst of that brokenness. God's mercy is ready. And that means something very powerful for us today. See, our world is, is filled with injustice, and it's filled with people who are ready to call out injustice, but it can't offer you any kind of grace or any kind of hope. Uh, Satan merely accuses. He never atones. He says, you're beyond hope. You're you're a narcissist. You're a toxic person. That's who you are. You will always be that way, and there is no possibility of change. Your life is over. You are beyond hope. And, And the gospel comes to us, and it says something totally different. It says, you've been proud. God says, you've been proud. You've rebelled against me. You've been self-deceived, but I'm going to give you a chance to repent. I love to watch sinners broken come before me and say, I need Jesus, the message of the Bible is that there's hope. And if you're here today and the Holy Spirit is convicting you of something, if he's showing you that you've been proud, that you've been self-deceived, that you've been stubborn and unwilling to let anybody else in and show you what's wrong, then he's not doing that to toy with you, folks. He's not showing you that you've been wrong to mess around with your mind. He's doing that out of love. He's doing that out of mercy and grace. He's willing to let you feel the pain so that you might run to him for forgiveness. He's willing to convict you of sin so that you might humble yourself. Beware of pride because there's still hope. There's still hope today. There's still a chance to abandon it. There's still a chance to run away. There's still a chance to be like that tax collector who went to the temple to pray. He was so humiliated by his sin. He wasn't even willing to look towards the heavens. And he just lifted up his hands and he closed his eyes and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's who I am. I've got nothing to bring to you. No achievements, no good works, nothing but sin. Nothing but a need for your mercy and your grace. And folks, if, if God is convicting you of that today, if God is tugging at your heart, if the Holy Spirit is is Pulling on you and saying, you've been proud. Repent. And he wants to show mercy to you today. He wants to extend his kindness and his grace to you today. I, and I just hope, I, I pray you receive it. Would you bow with me now? Let's pray to God. Father, I, I want to thank you so much for your, your patient mercy. Uh, we, we also want to thank you for your display of glorious judgment it's painful to read about it's painful to think about but you've opened up a a window into your own heart a heart of righteousness and holiness and steadfastness a heart that is against the proud a heart that is burning in righteousness toward those who have committed injustice And, and father we stand before you today we cannot tell you hey i'm fundamentally different from Saul. I am so much better than him. No, we're not. And so, Father, we, we long to just bow before you and, and call out to you for your grace and your kindness and your forgiveness. Father, I pray that in these moments of response that that's exactly what would happen. Uh, Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.